Welcome to ARA Audio Room, the official podcast of the Australian Rheumatology Association, fostering excellence in the diagnosis and management of musculoskeletal and inflammatory conditions through training, professional development, research and advocacy. This ARA Audio Room podcast on demystifying biologics, their biosimilars, and the PBS was developed in collaboration with NPS MedicineWise. Well, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet today. Uh, we pay tribute to their physical and spiritual connection to land, waters, and community, enduring now and has been throughout time. And we pay respect to them, their culture, and to elders past and present. So hello and uh, welcome. I'm Professor Deborah Rowett from the University of South Australia, where I'm the Discipline Leader for Pharmacy. This ARA podcast has been developed with funding from the Australian Government Department of Health through the Value in Prescribing BDMARDS grant. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing biologics and the PBS. Our guests for today's podcast are Professor Andrew Wilson, Chair of the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, or PBAC for short, and Dr Paul Kubler, Consultant Rheumatologist at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. Welcome, Andrew and Paul, and thank you very much for being our guest today. Andrew, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about how does the PBAC decide which medicines are listed on the PBS and how prices for these medicines are determined at the time of listing? Well, the process is both simple and complex. The concept behind it is, is relatively simple. The process and the process that go with it and the process to try and make it a fair process make it seem like it's a lot more complicated than it is. The first thing to say about it is the PBAC process is submission driven. We don't go out and seek medicines that might be wanted to list. Companies make a decision to list the drug and they make a decision about what they will seek a reimbursement for on the PBS. They get advice from the department around that initially, but they don't have to follow that advice So the process is submission-driven in the first instance. The role of the PBAC in this process, and it's a a role which is written into legislation, almost unique legislation in some ways, requires us to consider the comparative effectiveness, the comparative safety, and the cost-effectiveness of a medicine. And we can't make a positive recommendation for medicine unless we consider it to be cost-effective for at least some portion of the potential patient population. There's a process which follows through to get to that, though, the submission from the company is evaluated by some independent evaluators. That goes to the company and they're able to comment on that, and that then goes to our two principal subcommittees, the Drug Utilisation Subcommittee, which looks at the definition of the patient population and the likely size of the patient population and therefore the likely financial implications, and the Economic Subcommittee, which looks at the economics, the cost effectiveness primarily. That advice also goes to the company and they can feedback on that, and then that all comes to the PBAC. In addition to that, we get input from consumers, from clinicians through an open process, and that's something which also goes into our consideration of the medicine in making a recommendation to the Minister for listing. If a drug can't be listed on the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme unless we make a positive recommendation to the Minister, but the Minister doesn't have to accept that, the Government has a policy at the moment of accepting all positive recommendations of the PBAC. Thank you very much. It's quite a broad area and you've summarised that very well for us today. 
As we're talking, I suppose, specifically about biologics in the PBS, if we could just perhaps explore a little further. When biosimilars enter the market, prescribers are told that they will make biologics more affordable. But if you look at the current PBS schedule, the biosimilars can sometimes be listed on the PBS at the same price as the originator or reference biologic. Why is this and how do biosimilars affect PBS pricing for biologics overall? So a biosimilar, by definition, is seen to have the same effect and the same safety profile as the originator medicine. So in general, those medicines will seek a listing by a mechanism we call cost minimisation. That is, they're basically seeking the same price as the medicines that are listed already. Other drugs can also seek a cost minimisation. So sometimes we've seen, in the, particularly in the rheumatology area, other biological DMARDs, other classes of biological DMARDs, which have also come in on the basis of biosimilars, but they don't have to. If they don't, they have to demonstrate that they're more effective. If they're seeking a different price, they have to demonstrate that they're more effective than listed medications. But for biosimilars, they're basically considered as, as cost mins, and they will be listed at the same price. Now, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme is not a tender process. So it differs from a For example, public hospitals, public hospitals run a tender process and they aim to get the cheapest drug within a particular class listed in their scheme. The PBS runs on the basis of what are called statutory pricing reductions or pricing arrangements. And basically the entry of a biosimilar within the market creates an automatic price reduction for drugs within that class. And the more that are listed, the more that that price comes down. So the issue then, of course, is this is a publicly funded scheme. So the the benefit as prices of medicines come down, there's more room, if you like, within the envelope to fund drugs. And that can have a couple of consequences. One is the price comes down from the PBAC's point of view. We get an opportunity to then say, "Hmm, were there restrictions that we put in place originally, which may have been relatively narrow, are we at a point where the price is now such that we can look at a broader range of patients? And that's important particularly an area like rheumatology, where we see these drugs quite appropriately being introduced for a narrow group of patients with severe disease. But then as people have become more familiar with them and more used to them, there's a, an inclination to use them for a broader group of patients. And we're very aware that that's one of the trends in that area. And we're keeping our eye on it as the price falls. What you're saying there is that the overall price for the biologics falls as those biosimilars come onto the PBS. So maybe turning to you, Paul, as a prescriber of these medicines, how does the cost of the medicine influence your decision towards prescribing a biosimilar? Well, I think as individual prescribers, we're all aware that we're looking for cost value with effective treatments. And all of us will be aware that the introduction of a biosimilars has reduced the overall price for the drugs. So in a broader sense, many clinicians are very aware that this represents an opportunity to treat a broader group of patients for a similar cost. And of course, we're all taxpayers contributing to the federal government's coffers to to fund various things, including a health budget. So that's in a bigger sense. I think we're all very aware of that. And in addition to that, I'd like to say it's not just in medicines, is it? Healthy competition helps to reduce the price of a product. We see this in groceries. We see it in petrol and medicines is another area where if you have more competition, there is a lower competitive price over time. So I think people are aware of that. 
how that becomes operationalized, I suppose, to an individual patient care is, is a little bit different to the broader question. Thanks very much, Paul. So perhaps taking into account the discussion that we've had about prices and how they're determined, do you think prescribers should be concerned about comparing the listed PBS price or can they feel free to choose the medication that they think is best for their patient, knowing that the PBAC has determined you know, the best value for money when they are listing that medicine on the PBS? Andrew or, or Paul, would you like to comment on that question? Well, thanks, Deb. I'll start and then Paul, I'm sure, will add. Clearly, it's always the role of the clinician to choose the most appropriate medicine for the patient. However, when it comes to biosimilars uh, versus originator, the issue is if we consider those medicines to be equivalent in terms of their effectiveness and safety, then if the patient was actually having to pay for that medicine, you wouldn't choose to give them a more expensive medicine. And so I guess from a PBAC point of view, that government would expect a similar sort of uh, consideration in, in relation to that. But, you know, as I say, first and foremost, the clinician needs to make that, uh, that decision about what's most appropriate for the patient in relation to that. We have to have a viable market for our biosimilars. So if they don't get enough of the patient population, then it's not viable to, to remain in, in the Australian market. And then we don't get the price reduction benefits that come from that. I guess the other thing to say is that supply arrangements around the world can vary at different periods of time. And we see that with some medicines, not with biological DMARD so far, but with other medicines. And it is preferable from our point of view to have a number of suppliers in the market so that we have some resilience if there are shortages for a particular medicine. Over to you, Paul. I'd agree with Andrew. I think first and foremost, you choose the drug which you believe is the best one option for this patient right here, right now. I think people, when you look at the published price on a website, my feeling is that they may be not entirely accurate and that those published prices probably don't take into account rebates, caps, commercial in-confidence information, things which I can understand have various sensitivities. Sometimes my colleagues have expressed to me, for my new RA patient, I should choose an anti-TNF versus an anti-IL-6 versus a JAK inhibitor because the anti-TNF's price appears to be lower than um, the comparator alternative modes. And I don't think that's actually a relevant thing for a prescriber to get into because I think you'll find there's actually only smallish differences in terms of magnitude of price, or if they are there, they're not really the decision for a clinician. We should probably just choose the best drug for this individual right here, right now, and trust the PBAC to have negotiated the best price for what drugs are available to us, uh, rather than trying to second guess what actually is the real price. Well, if only it was so easy to say that we negotiated the price, that would make life a lot simpler for us and the companies. But that's not quite the way it works. But uh, there is a process which results in what we believe to be a cost-effective price. And as you quite rightly say, there are a range of ways of achieving that. The listed price, the thing that appears on the PBS schedule, and a price which has been agreed between the government and the company isn't necessarily the, the real price which was being paid, which sometimes quite difficult to estimate because of the way those prices are achieved. It's indicative of the price. It does give you an indication of the relativities between you know, different drug classes. 
in terms of pricing. But as you quite rightly say, that's driven by the fact that pharmaceutical companies operate in an international environment. It's important to them to have an international bench price, which that price reflects, because that's basically the, the basis under which they work. But the price may vary very substantially between different countries for the same drug. It's, it's, it is frustrating. It's frustrating for clinicians. It's frustrating for other people not to know, you know, what the real drugs are, but it's the reality of the marketplace. And, you know, with the US potentially introducing reference pricing, it's going to become an even more important. But I suppose it comes back to the point that both of you made previously is that the clinician is choosing the medication that's most appropriate for that individual patient and that the prices on the PBS have been the ones that have been negotiated to give the best value for money. Would that be a fair comment? For us to be able to make a positive recommendation, we have to have achieved a price arrangement with the company which achieves cost effectiveness. And that generally occurs with the original brand, the original drug which is submitted. The biosimilars that come in subsequently are generally on the basis of cost minimisation to that. that. That's not always necessarily straightforward because sometimes the biosimilar comes in with a different type of delivery device or whatever. There may be some other benefits that have to be taken into account with a biosimilar, but in effect, any biosimilar is at the same price. I know when, you know, in the preparation for this, one of the questions that came up was the issue of people moving between different brands of biosimilar and whether that was considered a, a switch for the purposes of the BDMARD count in the rheumatology world. A change of brand does not constitute a, a switch for the purposes of the count for any of the classes of biological DMARDs in rheumatology. So if a patient does switch between brands or if a clinician makes a deliberate decision, to change a patient from one brand to another brand, that does not count as a switch. A switch is between different classes of biological DMARD. Thank you very much. It's great to have that clarified because that was a question that had come up from rheumatologists, so that's important. Maybe if I could just turn, Paul, to you, you know, from a consumer point of view, how can consumers contribute to the sustainability of the PBS and do their choices make a difference to what medicines are prescribed? Yes, there is certainly a, a subset of the consumers who are very sort of conscious about price, mainly in terms of the global price, in terms of what it means to the overall healthcare budget. Sometimes I have patients who would say, can I be on the cheaper or equivalent version of this molecule or medicine? But I must say that's probably a minority. Partly that is, I think we need to increase the overall education and literacy and knowledge in the community of, of what biosimilars mean. And that will help to some extent. But one of my concerns is there's actually not a specific, I suppose, uptake driver for a patient to choose a biosimilar versus the originator biologic, like what we would see in a traditional small molecule where there may be a sort of a price discount if they took the generic version versus the original version. I think that would actually probably get more buy-in and interest from a broader group of consumers. But as a clinician, some things I might actually deliberately choose a biosimilar versus the originated, mainly because of things which I can think to improve adherence. So, for instance, it's not uncommon to have patients very anxious about receiving their script in a timely manner, particularly at a, at a renewal time point. We all know there's difficulties with the postal system in delivering you know, scripts in a timely manner. 
So if I have a highly anxious patient who's particularly had a bad experience about a lost script in transit, it does give you some comfort to be able to do a streamlined authority at the time of that consultation to hand them the script physically at that appointment. I think that assists with adherence. Sometimes I will choose a biosimilar where sometimes they've been formulated to have a lower incidence of like injection site reaction, which typically may also improve the patient's adherence if they think that there's less sting, redness, irritation. So some of those biosimilar formulations have been specifically formulated to reduce injection site reactions. So there's a couple of things about adherence that comes into it. Device, I I think nearly all the products come with a reasonable range of devices that you can actually educate and teach the patient to self-administer or at least their carer to self-administer. I think some of my pediatric colleagues are a little bit limited. Some of the biosimilars don't come in a presentation with a small enough aliquotting to give to like a two to six-year-old based on body weight. So you mightn't choose a biosimilar because there's not a ready presentation available for those younger children. So I think you've got to think about adherence, what can optimise adherence, what can, what is the device suitable for this patient as well. And Paul, you put your finger there on on one of the issues for us in terms of patient populations, because, you know, when you move into the paediatric patient population, you've got, you know, a relatively small group of patients. That's not to in any way belittle their importance, but from a market point of view, that makes it much smaller group. So there's much less total market for companies. So they're less inclined to bring paediatric versions of their medicine into a market, which might already be saturated, unless they do have some sort of uh, small advantage in relation to it. The approach that we generally take in relation to that is if there is an advantage like that, uh, clinicians and patients will recognise it. We don't necessarily pay a premium. We may, we may pay a small premium, but our staff point usually is if there's an advantage when you've got drugs which are basically the same in terms of their clinical effects if there's an advantage to it then they're likely you know to get a bigger share of the market anyway from that advantage for exactly the sorts of reasons that you describe. Thank you. Perhaps as we're coming to the end of this uh, podcast for today, I'd be interested, Andrew, if you would like to just comment on, so will having more biosimilars contribute to improved access to biologics generally? As I sort of said earlier in the presentation, when new medicines come in, um, there are a couple of reasons why it tends to be a much more restricted patient population. One is if it's a new drug, then the company may only seek a very narrow patient population group. They may do that because that's what their registration is, is only for a limited proportion of, of the total patient population. And remembering we don't list drugs on the PBS unless they are TGA approved, and we only list drugs on the PBS for the indications registered with the TGA. That can be a source of frustration Rheumatologists are you know, very familiar with rituximab, which has a uh, much broader use than the registered indications. And uh, we're particularly working on to try and find a way to broaden access to that medicine. Generally speaking, the price of the drug is much higher when it first comes into the market. So we're very focused on the number of patients who are being treated. As the price falls, then we start to have room to say, wait a minute, do we need to be that restrictive about it? Can we open it up? Is that consistent with the registration? And if the price falls enough, we may move to a situation where we basically list those drugs without restriction so that the decision then rests with the clinician about how they use the medicine. Well, that's got to fall quite a way before we can afford to do that. But, you know, the biological DMARDs are definitely, uh, as more of the biosimilars come into the market, the price is definitely falling. 
Well, thank you both very much for participating today in this ARA podcast. We look forward to discussing further matters related to the value in prescribing BD mount in future podcasts. Thank you very much. Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Deb. Thank you. This podcast is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health through the Value in Prescribing BDMARDS program grant. Developed with the guidance of members of the Targeted Therapies Alliance, for further information, please go to www.nps.org.au slash BDMARDS or www.rheumatology.org.au.